Let's look now to the Word of God and read this text together. It begins on page 856 in your pew Bible, if you're using that. Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So reads the Word of God. When I was a child, second and third grade age, my family lived in a small university town in eastern Tennessee. A little ways down the the sloping side street that descended from the minor state highway that separated this small town from the university campus, there lived an elderly couple who were as gracious and kind as they were distinguished and polished. Remember, this is the impression of a second or third grade child. They lived in a fine old house with antique furniture and a a dark wood library with a fireplace and a, a tiled greeting area that separated an Edwardian living room on the left from an, an old-fashioned curtained parlor to the right. At least that's how I remember it. And there were many other appointments in that home that were just irresistibly engaging to a young boy and made the whole scene feel like something out of a Dickens novel. The memory of that couple lives in my mind like, like an old storybook just captivating, but, but a bit fuzzy around the edges. Their name was Jones. They may have had adult children, I, I really don't recall, but they lived there alone. That stately old couple in that grand old house, in that sleepy little village of 800 people, tucked away in the Cumberland Mountains. I think of them as I try to imagine Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
That's the image I have in mind. The parents of John the Baptist, the one whose celebration we meet this morning in this text. Luke had described Zechariah and Elizabeth as righteous before God, walking blamelessly according to the commandments and statutes of the Lord, back in verse 6 of this chapter. Then he added to this image when he described them as living in the hill country of Judah. That may be part of the connection to the Joneses. But I do just wonder how that small Tennessee town would have responded if Mrs. Jones, so advanced in years, were suddenly reported to be expecting a child. (laughs) It can make you chuckle, and you didn't even know the Joneses. That's what we're seeing in this text. Can you even imagine? Add in a certain Old Testament flavor that we no longer really sense very clearly today, and this story becomes even more incredulous, uh, but even more real, I think. Luke recorded, verse 7 of chapter 1 here, that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Under the Old Covenant, it would have seemed strange to hear of someone who walked blamelessly in all the commandments and yet was barren. It wouldn't make sense. Deuteronomy 7 verse 11 says, You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And if you do, verses 12 and 13, then verse 14 You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female among you who is barren or among your livestock. Barrenness was one of the signs of God's blessings, of the covenant, of walking in faithful obedience. How do you walk in faithful obedience and yet experience a covenant curse? It's a tension. It's hard to understand. It makes you look and say, something's wrong here. Now, Elizabeth's condition was not unheard of. Hannah had been both devout and barren for Samuel 1, and there are connections to this chapter here, as we pointed out last Sunday, with Mary's song. But in such cases, I would suggest to you that it's not covenant curses at all. It's more like something that we would hear from Jesus And did hear from him in John chapter 9 as he addressed the need of the blind man. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's a covenant curse. It has to be. Elizabeth, who sinned, you or Zechariah, your parents? Why is it that you're barren? It's got to be some cause. Jesus answered, in John chapter 9, verse 3, it was not this, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's another reason for barrenness. The works of God were surely displayed in Hannah as she cried out to the Lord and he answered her prayer and gave her a son who became the priest that anointed David as king of Israel. And something similar is going on with Elizabeth. A lifetime of the disgrace and trauma and question 
and uncertainty and struggle of barrenness when all you're doing is pressing on to walk according to the law of God. God, how does this happen? And yet that as well is the context for Zechariah's faithful service in the temple. So we read about it earlier in this chapter. This couple is pressing on with the Lord in the midst of a clear sign of covenant cursing playing out day after day, month after month, year after year, and from their age it would seem decade after decade before the people of God. But what Jesus said about the blind man and his parents seems to have been the case for Elizabeth and Zechariah as well. But now, here in this story, here in this story, and, and we'd left behind the actual account of it, though we'll read portions of it here, her reproach was now being taken away. That's the way it was described in verse 25 here. Her reproach is being taken away in her old age. The works of God were being displayed in her, we might say. Verse 57, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Oh, that's an understatement. This is an old woman having a child. Great mercy? Yeah, great mercy. If you're thinking of it in context, those words are okay. But if you haven't taken a moment to remember what she's been through, they'll pass by and you'll miss them entirely. The greatness of the tender mercy of our God. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. They would not have been rejoicing like this under any other circumstances. I'm confident. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise this child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John because of the word of the angel to her husband. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. Are you kidding me? A birth at this age and you're not calling him Zechariah Jr.? And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be called, suggesting, by the way, that when he was struck mute back in verse 20, he was struck deaf as well. The word seems to suggest that, but it's not until we get here that we see that Zechariah probably not only could not speak but could not hear over this period of time. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, verse 63, his name is John. And with that act of obedience, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Let's listen to what he said. I think it would be worth hearing this brother's celebration after this scene. Agreed? We'll take it under two very simple headings. You see them there. Uh, many commentators say this whole song from 68 to 79 is a single sentence in the original language. But if there is a break, it's at verse 75. 
There's a period there in our Bibles, and that may be appropriately placed, but the first thing we hear is, blessed be the Lord. And that's where this song gets its title, Benedictus. Blessed be the Lord, and then from verses 76 through 79, blessed be the child. So let's walk through it and listen to Zechariah's celebration and see if it doesn't set our hearts aright as we go from this place today. Blessed be the Lord, verses 68 to, or 69, 68 to 75. In short, this grateful father worshipped God. We could expect that for what he's accomplished. But he worshipped God focused on something else ahead of the birth of his long-awaited son. There's something more pressing on Zechariah's mind as he finally speaks than just the giving of a son after all this time of barrenness. Something else was foremost in his mind and heart. So what was that? The first thing he celebrated was what we selected as our title this morning. The tender yet relentless mercy of the saving grace of our God. That's what was on Zechariah's heart. Let's read this again slowly with some comment. He began here, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Past tense verbs. This is another of those prolectic descriptions speaking of God's future saving work in Christ as though it's already been accomplished. In Zechariah's mind, with what he's experienced, he personally, I think, is speaking now, saying, this, folks, is done. If he can take Elizabeth and give us a son through her, God can do anything. And if God can do that, and he's done it in the way that he has told me the story, then this work that he's accomplishing is as good as finished. We can see that even into the next clause, verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. Has raised up. This is Jesus. He's the horn of salvation from the house of God's servant David. But Jesus actually hasn't been born yet. Not to mention accomplished his saving work. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth, I love this, singular, mouth, singular, of his holy prophets, plural. We'll come back to this in just a few minutes. As he spoke from the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So now in just a few short verses, he's tied in both David and Abraham into his celebration of the greatness of the glory of God and the magnificence of the salvation he has given. Continuing on, to grant us, verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. 
There's the aim right there of Zechariah's celebration. There's the focus of his celebration. God has done all these great things that we might be delivered from that which just landed me in a season of judgment that we might serve him without fear. Remember the words to the angel? The very first words to Zechariah were, don't be afraid. I come with good news. Serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Zechariah was talking about the coming and the mission of Jesus, the promised Messiah, and that's foremost on his mind. The promised Messiah whom his wife's relative Mary was already expecting. Jesus, the Redeemer, is the horn of salvation that God raised up in the house of his servant David. He's the one God had in mind when he told David, recorded back in 1 Samuel chapter 7, that your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Before me, your throne shall be established forever. That's what Zechariah is calling to mind as he celebrates the salvation of God and as he talks about Jesus, the promised Messiah who is about to be born as the horn of salvation from the house of David. The horn image is one of power, it's one of strength, it's one even of authority. We can see that in Psalm 18, among other places, most clearly, where David himself wrote, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. Now, Jesus, the horn of salvation from the house of David, is also being identified as the promised one foretold with one voice by the singular mouth of the collective prophets of the Old Testament. God would ultimately accomplish salvation from all Israel's enemies through him. And he'd show them the mercy he had promised to their fathers with whom he had established a covenant relationship. In God's covenant with Abraham, he promised to bless all of the families of the earth through Abraham's seed. Now tying all of these together, the prophetic expectation of Messiah, the promise of one to sit on the throne of David, and now the seed of Abraham through whom all of the nations will be blessed. Zechariah has put all of that in front of us in just a few brief verses, tying together the themes of the Scriptures and helping us to see their fulfillment in Jesus. As Zechariah makes mention of this covenant, this oath that God swore to Abraham, he linked together the grand scope of this multinational, this omni-national, all nations of the world, this omni-national blessing with the promise of a king and with the promise of salvation, a redeemer from the line of David who'd rule his people forever. It's an amazing work of biblical theology that Zechariah is doing, having this long period of silence and reflection on all that God is doing 
Zechariah the priest celebrating the coming together of the purpose and plan of God in the person of a promised Messiah. Zechariah is tying them all together from Israel's history and from Scripture and is helping them, helping us, see that all of them come in this one person. All of them are fulfilled in Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. That's the beginning. That's his his opening salvo. That's where his thoughts went as words finally erupted from his mouth. This is what came out. The praise, the greatness of the glory of God has provided a salvation like this. And, and, and God himself, who's, who's, who's pulling up threads here and there throughout the story of redemption, and then Zechariah, privileged to tie them together. So we begin seeing how this works. So where did he go from here? He talked about results. What are, what are the results of this kind of salvation being given by God? What results when all this happens, this worldwide blessing through saving redemption and life together under an eternally righteous and holy king, what results? Or to ask it another way, To what end will God's people be saved from all of their enemies, political and spiritual, in fulfillment of all of His promises? What's the result from this great salvation that's given? His aim is right there in verses 74 and 75. We identified them already. As you come back to the threshold and say, wait a minute, this is the fulfillment of the purpose of God in providing salvation for his image-bearing creatures who've been severed from relationship with him but are now going to be reunited with him through this grand and glorious saving work. His aim is that, verse 74, they being delivered from the hand of their enemies, enemies of all types, Enemies come in all shapes and sizes. It's not just the national military enemies of Israel. It's everything that gets in the way of Israel living according to covenant in relationship with God. It's everything that gets in the way of God's people walking with Him. That's what this salvation is given to address. His aim is that they, being delivered from the hands of their enemies, how quickly that passes by in Zechariah's statement, might serve him without fear. If your enemies have been removed, there's nothing to fear any longer. And here, my friends, confident that many of you are up against enemies right now, the darkest and biggest of them are inside your own hearts, not outside on the streets somewhere. These enemies are being talked about as having been conquered already by Zechariah, who's just anticipating the birth of Jesus. Think what it means for us now to know how this salvation was accomplished. 
We've lived through it. We've seen the events. We celebrate the events. We mark the coming of light into the world to dispel the darkness and to remove the fear of every enemy, internal and external, that stands in the way, not just of our walking in obedience, but of our enjoyment of relationship with God to the point of our proclamation of it as the greatest event that could happen in human history. The embracing of the truth of the gospel as accomplished through the very real and historical and concrete actions of a Savior 2,000 years ago, embraced personally to the point of sins forgiven, enemies subdued, such that we might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. That's a pretty good aim. Wouldn't you say? It's a pretty good aim. An outcome worth having. It surely seems like this is what Zechariah the priest had been pondering during his extended season of silence. Namely, the great salvation to which his child was appointed a herald, a forerunner, a messenger to prepare the way before this, this promised one who would deliver this salvation. And my friends, this salvation, this salvation that he's celebrating right here, Zechariah, 2,000 years ago, is one and the same, one and the same with the salvation we are still preaching today. It's a once-for-all salvation available to everyone who will receive it by faith. The promised seed of Abraham, of David, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh so that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. That is our salvation. Are you in? Are you in? Men, anyone who isn't this morning, now's the time. Now's the time. Just, just embrace the Savior. Enter into the joy of Christmas. Salvation provided from a great and glorious God who is able to provide it and to deliver you from every enemy, to deliver you from fear, to enable your obedience, and in so doing, to magnify your joy. What a privilege it is that we get to share this story and remember it together, not just annually, but week by week and day by day throughout the week. This was the aim. So what part does John play in all of this? Zechariah does get to the place where he's remembering his son just born. What part does John play in all of this? That's where his father went next. As he answered the question of the relatives and friends that they had answered there in verse 66, what then will this child be? God's hand is on this kid. What, 
what is John going to be? Zechariah got the privilege of answering that question for them. And the answer comes in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. That, that means to change their lives. You get to go preach a message that will change their lives. And the one coming behind you is going to facilitate that. You're calling people now to a repentance that's going to turn them around and head them in a wholly new direction beyond what we've been able to conceive thus far from the prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the coming of a new covenant. John, you're the messenger of this new covenant sent to prepare the way before him God Himself who will suddenly return to His temple. To give the knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. We could think about John as being one of many wonder how many other kids are being born today that are going to be the forerunner of Messiah. Answer, none. Zero. This is one man's job prophesied from the Scriptures. John is the messenger from Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 sent by God to prepare the way for the Lord. John is the Elijah of Malachi 4 whom God will send before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. As we'll see in the ongoing story, John will even dress like Elijah and live a similar kind of life. John is the voice of Isaiah 40 that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. Every obstacle overcome. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. To what end? And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's own word. These words would be preached by Zechariah and Elizabeth's son. Check out the early verses of Luke chapter 3, just a couple of pages on in your Bible. This is exactly the message that John preached, Isaiah 40, and he's the voice. John would preach and practice a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, preparation of hearts to embrace Messiah, to prepare people's hearts for the message of the Messiah. He'd even baptize Jesus himself. To fulfill all righteousness, we're told in the Gospel of Matthew, that doesn't mean that the Messiah needed to repent of any sin. 
but rather that he needed to complete everything that could be considered part of a relationship of obedience to God. He was going to be baptized like the rest. And he submitted to that at the hand of John. And we hear God's word that he was pleased with that obedience. John would preach his message of forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God. To complete now verse 78, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. You hear echoes of Psalm 23, but you hear echoes of the promised salvation that runs right through the Old Testament all the way back to its initial promise in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death Mostly, though, this reminds us of an image from Malachi 4 where the coming Messiah is described as the Son of Righteousness, not S-O-N, but S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness that will rise with healing in its wings for those who fear the name of the Lord. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. It also reminds us of Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness. Let that sink in. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness. You ever been in a place that you would call deep darkness? It's not necessarily descriptive of whether the sun is shining today. Sometimes deep darkness can be physical. Scripture even talks about the darkness that descended on Egypt as one of the ten plagues. It was a darkness that could be felt. But many of you also know that there's a darkness that could be felt that doesn't have anything to do with the light of the sun. All are included in this. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. The very sort of light that dispels whatever darkness has descended. That light comes to us in the Savior. In fact, we might call him the rising sun, this rising sun of a Savior will, verse 79, give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Why? Again, it's given here to guide their feet in the way of peace. Peace. So not only will the darkness of death be driven away by His great light, it will also guide their feet to the way of peace, to the way of Shalom. As it's been said many times, to the place of flourishing, the place of wholeness, the place of delight. Delight is a great antonym to darkness, isn't it? We tend to think of darkness, the opposite of that is light, but 
think the opposite of darkness, even more comprehensively, could be delight. Delight. That's shalom. That's peace. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are all satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, all under the ark of God's love. That's the way Cornelius Plantinga talks about it. Shalom is the way things ought to be. It's Eden. It's heaven. It's the presence of God. That's the outcome of the lifting of this darkness. The presence of God with all the blessing that that brings. It was John's calling to be the prophet who'd prepare the way for the one who'd accomplish this kind of salvation, who would accomplish all this in the lives of those who believe. Can you imagine such an assignment, such a calling? Can you imagine? What a joy this must have been to Zechariah's heart. And yet, the salvation itself that John would get to proclaim is greater than the birth of the son in his old age. At least it got prime billing. But can you imagine a assignment like this from God? If you want greatness as a mere human being, this is it, right? This is it. In fact, Jesus himself said over in chapter 7, verse 28 of Luke's gospel, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. This is a great assignment. Yet Zechariah, after nine plus months in silent reflection, recognized that the greatness of his son was not the result, not the result of anything inherent within his son. It was not the result of anything inherent within himself or his wife, Elizabeth. John's greatness was tied in total to his calling from God. It was tied in total to the one who followed him, whom he would be preaching. It was tied in total to Jesus. He was great simply because of his proximity to Jesus. His connection to Jesus, his fixation on Jesus, even his receiving and proclaiming the message of Jesus, his obeying God by faith and living the life that was completely wrapped in the proclamation of forgiveness of sins in preparation for Jesus. And the people of God are the ultimate beneficiaries. Again, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. Friends, this is the salvation that we still receive today. It's one and the same. It's the salvation that John preached would come through the promised Messiah the same as Zechariah was celebrating as, as good as done already. This is the salvation we still receive today. And not only is it a great salvation, it actually makes those who receive it great before God. It's the sort of greatness that we're actually craving whenever we pursue greatness in any other way. 
This is actually the greatness that satisfies our hearts. The greatness that comes to us in the receiving of this salvation is the greatness for which our heart yearns. Many of us turn our backs on this salvation in pursuit of something we think is greater. When all the while the greatness that we long for, that we've been made to long for, I would argue, is ours only by embracing this great salvation from a yet greater God. Why do I say it that way? Well, to finish Jesus' statement from over in Luke chapter 7 about the greatness of God, he said, I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Yet, Jesus said, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. How does that work? What is Jesus saying? I think he's saying that as great as John was, he still lived in the age of promise. Here's where we see that that which Zechariah celebrates as already having been accomplished hasn't yet been accomplished. Jesus hasn't yet lived the sinlessly perfect life. He hasn't yet proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and then gone to the cross to secure it for all who believe. He hasn't yet risen from the dead in victory over sin and death. He hasn't yet returned to the Father in vindication of all that He had done. He hasn't yet promised to return to finish this work of salvation and fully and finally deliver it. That hasn't been done yet. John still lived in the age of promise But on this side of Christ, on this side of the manger of Bethlehem, on this side of the cross of Calvary, any who receive by faith the sacrifice of the Lamb of God to whom John pointed, they belong to the kingdom of God. They belong to the age of fulfillment. They belong to the day of salvation. John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, but that was still in the Old Covenant sense of the filling of the Spirit. The Spirit comes on someone for a particular assignment. It would be with him all of his days, but still in an Old Covenant sense, not in a New Covenant sense. It wasn't yet the third person of the Trinity taking up permanent residence with his New Covenant people, making them the new temple. His dwelling place on earth following the finishing of Jesus' saving work and the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. It wasn't yet age of fulfillment filling of the Spirit. Because that happened as we read and studied in Acts chapter 2. Great as John was, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is like the writer of Hebrews said, following that long list of Old Testament heroes in in Hebrews chapter 11. He said, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, namely to live in the days of fulfillment. 
that apart from us, the writer of Hebrews said, they should not be made perfect. They're waiting for our day. Now, their salvation awaited the work of Christ and the giving of His Spirit just as ours does, but we were born after that was accomplished. They were born before, as was John. So we would say from that, they're not really waiting for us. They're waiting for our day. The day of fulfillment. My friends, that day has come. This salvation, we've seen how it was accomplished. So what is our bottom line today? As we reflect on this passage, which is Luke's final setup to his description of the birth of Christ in the stable of Bethlehem, that's what comes next. What's our bottom line today? Our bottom line comes in two parts, quickly statable. First, it's a call to repentance and faith to those among us who've never tasted of this great salvation, the very offer we made a little earlier this morning. It's a call to repentance and faith among those who've never tasted of this great salvation provided through this great Savior whom John was conceived and born and lived and died to point out and to preach. Friends, this is the only means by which we will ever be able to have a relationship with God is through this one whom John preached through the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's the only way we'll be able to have a relationship with God that changes us from who we are into who he intended us to be. And that is the greatness that we talked about, transformation into who he intended us to be. Perfect conformity to the plan and purpose of God. So that's one bottom line. If you haven't trusted Christ today, trust him now. There's nothing like this great salvation. And second, it's a reminder to each of us who already believe in the greatness of our salvation. It's a reminder. Not just because it's changed our eternal address from heaven to hell. That's not the only reason we rejoice in it. But because it's an amazing salvation beyond words, but there's still a bigger picture than that. Just heaven to hell or hell to heaven. I want us to leave here today pondering the unlimited picture, the big picture, that we, even beyond our own sins forgiven and hell subdued, as the hymn writer says, we actually have a part in God's great and grand salvation plan. We have a part in the story. We take on the family name. We're, we're, we're part of the new covenant community. Our names were on the mind and heart of our Savior as He died. They're written on His hands. We have a part in God's grand salvation plan that He's been progressively revealing ever since Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden. We have a part in that story. 
That's the salvation that's ours in Christ. That's the salvation which we live. That's the salvation that we preach. That's the salvation that we enjoy moment by moment through the day. That's the salvation that brings the meaning to Christmas celebration. That's the meaning that, that brings the meaning to, to the giving of gifts at Christmas, imitating the greatest gift of all time. This great and grand and glorious salvation is ours in Christ. And as we get up this morning to sing, as we participate in the remembrance of his body and blood this morning, as we go out from this place into deep darkness, we take that light with us because that's who God is. That's the salvation that he's provided and if you will now, pray with me in thanksgiving to God for that which he has done. And as we do, musicians can return to the platform and communion servers join me at the front. Heavenly Father, we began this morning by confessing that we are a poor and needy people who can take things for granted. And I pray that through the reflections of Zechariah this morning, we would be freed from that complacency and a zealous, passionate love for our salvation that you have provided might be reignited within our hearts. Ignited for the first time among those who haven't known Christ prior but ignited afresh in the hearts of those who know him and for whom salvation has become bland. Father, I pray that you would do such a work in our hearts that you would be glorified in our actions, our words, our thoughts in the week ahead, that we would see your light come in and dispel whatever darkness we face that we would delight in the prospect of sharing the light with those whom we can see are in darkness and that there would be great joy in that proclamation. Joy like we hear in the recorded voice of Zechariah from the page of Scripture this morning. May we erupt in praise likewise. and all in exaltation of the one who provided that salvation and whose body and blood we now remember. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.